Welcome to the Investing for Life podcast, where we apply proven investment principles to the lives of successful business people to help you enrich your own. With your host, Douglas Isles. I'm delighted to be joined today by Tristan Knowles. Tristan is a survivor of childhood cancer and amputee who has won Paralympic and World Championship gold medals in wheelchair basketball, one of the toughest sports around. I first met Tristan a few years ago when he was an advisor at CBA, and today he's an advice manager at AIA Financial Wellbeing. So Tristan, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Investing for life is often about the setbacks that people face, and I want to go back to your childhood, and I want to start with the conversations you were having with doctors as a young boy? Yeah, um, I guess my um, my childhood was pretty unique in a way, having had the perfect childhood in many, many ways, um, but also experiencing uh, some, some pretty terrible things that uh, not many children have to go through, thankfully, uh, and that was in the form of, uh, of childhood cancer. Uh, and I've always been someone that's, uh, that's related things to numbers, even from a, a very, very young age. And believe it or not, when I was diagnosed with bone cancer at the age of nine, one of the very first questions I asked my doctor uh, was, what are my chances of surviving as, as a nine-year-old? And it, it's, a, it's a really strange age to be told that you've got cancer. Um, I lost my granddad the year before, so I knew this was, I knew it was serious, but also too, I was nine years old. So in many, many ways, I was totally oblivious to what the next 12 months looked like. But um, I related really well to numbers. So I asked my doctor and my parents, what are my chances of surviving? And he told me 70%. And I think largely due to how positive my parents are, uh, I was convinced that I was going to survive. And what were the odds? Well, they they were 70. So um, I was unlucky enough to... uh, to basically go into remission, which is essentially there's there's no detection of cancer for a, a two-year period. Uh, that required three monthly checkups um, at the hospital, so blood test, x-rays, things like that. And on my very last three monthly checkup, two years after I had been told that everything was okay, uh, I was told that everything uh, was not okay. And one thing that I learned from the first time that I was sick was that it tended to be the kids that either had a brain tumour or lung cancer that didn't survive. And that is um, tremendously confronting as a, as a child. Uh, so when my doctor told me two years after I'd been told that everything was okay, that they'd found cancer in my lung, uh, I completely broke down into tears. Uh, I was hysterical uh, because um, believe it or not, you, you, your listeners might not believe it, but that moment there was the very, very first time did I allow the thought to enter my head uh, that I'm going to die. So I was, um, of course, very, very upset. But once I'd calmed down, I asked my doctor the same question I'd always asked him, and that was, what are my chances of surviving? And I didn't know that my parents and my doctors had agreed to uh, to tell me a little white lie. They'd anticipated me asking this question and my doctor said 50%. So I'd gone from thinking, you know, this, is, this might be the end to hearing 50% and I never allowed that thought that uh, I might die to, to enter my mind again. And again, I was convinced that I would survive um, only to find out um, once I... Past cancer the second time, the odds were around 10%. So 
my um my parents and my doctor made a a really really huge decision to um I guess protect me um from from reality and we've got no way of telling what would have happened had they told me 10% but I I deeply believe that it's um a really huge factor as to why I'm still here today that's uh, interesting so you kind of um the, the idea of a coin toss was something you were able to accept if you like but but anything worse would have been um very very difficult cycle particularly someone who was uh who was so numerate did you allow the thought to enter your head even at 50% that that could be the end or do you think that was enough to sort of change direction for you mentally yeah i i think um i think cuz i started from a place of thinking this is the end to hearing 50% and i was just so relieved that uh suddenly i thought that there was a chance um, that I could survive. And uh, again, my, my parents and, and my doctor, who was the same doctor from the first time, were just um, ha- had the, the most significant positive impact on me, um, kept me focused on, on moving forward. And um, yeah, I, I, I can honestly say that I didn't allow those sort of negative thoughts to, to re-enter my mind. And it's, it's sort of, um, I've, I've tried to take a bit of a learning from that and apply it to everyday life. And that is, is that sometimes odds are meant to be defied. So um, I guess when I'm confronted with um, challenges and, and obstacles now, um, instead of sort of shying away from a, a challenge, I really embrace the situation and, and sort of thrive in those situations where um, certain things are not meant to be achievable. So maybe we could, we could take that sort of define the odds on, onto the basketball court. I mean, um, today, you know, you're very accomplished um, wheelchair basketball player, superstar, um, won Olympic gold and um, world championship golds. Um, I've watched that sport. It's one of the most physically demanding sports, I think, on the planet. Can you just talk about and, and describe uh, to our listeners the, I guess, the excitement you get from the game and, and yeah, just sort of take us through your experiences in that area? Yeah, and um, I, I guess that um, one of the biggest things I had to overcome as a teenager, um, cancer aside, was the above knee amputation that came with cancer. Um, and my dream as a child, I, I was convinced that I was going to play AFL football for Hawthorne. And um, obviously that door closed. And part of the challenge for me was finding a new love, something that I loved uh, and was passionate about just as much uh, as Aussie rules. And it, it, it took a while, um, Douglas, to be honest. Um, firstly, to find something I was as passionate about, but two, to come to terms with um, with who I was as a, as a person. Um, but yeah, I was fortunate enough to cross paths with wheelchair basketball at the age of 15. And um, yeah, it's, um, it's quite crazy how things turn out. It's um, bone cancer and, and going through that has sent my life in a direction that I never, ever could have anticipated. And, um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to represent Australia at, at five Paralympic Games now and, um, and four world championships. I've been fortunate enough to, uh, to play the sport professionally, uh, over in Europe where I lived for seven years. But in, in terms of what I love about the sport is that I just, I love the team aspect. Um, I love that it's fast and, and quick. There's things going on all around you. It's, um, it's very physical, as you pointed out, which, um, makes it a lot of fun to to play. You talk about defying the odds, but let's just 
drill down into these major competitions you've participated in, what are your fondest memories? Yeah, um, obviously, um, I'm, I'm one of the older athletes now in, in the team, having just turned 39, and the young guys remind me of that quite frequently. But um, I guess when I reflect back on 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 the career, it's it's not the um, it's not the medals or the or the trophies that um, that come to mind. It's those it's those moments in the change rooms um, with with teammates, uh, particularly when you're at a you know a, a Paralympic Games or a World Championships, and you you sort of take that 15, 20 minutes before a game just for yourself, just um, and you try and create that quietness and that calmness, and you. You sort of gaze around the room and you look at what everyone's gone through to uh, to get to that point in terms of overcoming disability, but also turning themselves into um, elite athletes that are about to pull on a, a green and gold singlet and and play for their country. And it it, it still to this day uh, gives me goosebumps, um, and it's still the thing that gets me out of bed at, at sort of six in the morning and go and do all the all the training that's required before work to um to stay at this level but it's um it's such a such a fun sport it um it, it's always funny watching basketball players jump in a wheelchair for the first time um good I'm, I'm i'm talking good basketball players right but suddenly they realize that um you know the action of shooting a basketball for example uh they rely so much on the power from their legs and core, which when you sit in a wheelchair uh, is taken away. So um, I, I guess there's, there's two challenges playing the sport. One is that you need to be able to play basketball at a, a really, really high level. Um, but also too, your body needs to be in a, I guess, the physical shape to move that wheelchair around um, very, very quickly. Which is, which of itself is a, is a, an exercise in itself. So it's two things, two things at once, which is uh Quite, quite incredible. Um, as you've played several of these major competitions, does it does it get any easier? Does it get easier? No, um, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. I, I think, like most sports um, around the world, uh, wheelchair basketball is getting faster and faster and faster. Uh, I'm getting older and older and older, so um, I'm having to, um, you know, leave no stone unturned when it comes to preparing for a major event like this and, you know, uh, exploring areas that I sort of never really paid much attention to in my twenties, um, you know, nutrition, for example, and, um, wheelchair basketball is one of those sports where you do not want to be pushing around any weight unnecessarily. So, um, no, it, it doesn't get easier. Um, it, and the sport is more and more competitive as well. And I think that's probably part of the general theme of disabled sports in general. Um, a lot of people that haven't seen um, sort of Paralympic sports might have a certain perception of, of what that looks like. And um, yes, we acknowledge that the Paralympic Games were sort of born out of, um, I guess, sort of a rehabilitation focus. Um, but today, Paralympic sports are um, elite athletes that just happen to have a disability. So it's um, it's been a magnificent ride being involved in that movement over a 25-year period now, seeing what the sport looked like back then to, to what it looks like now. It's, um, it's absolutely incredible. And how important is that, that positive attitude you talked about sort of getting you through as an 11-year-old? Um, is that something that is an essential, um, even as a 
almost 40 year old athlete how, how important is that part of your your psyche yeah well I, I you know going going through cancer as a child uh it, it the, the, there's no easy way to say it but it, it does change the way you look at life and and the way that you approach things and um when i sort of sit back and reflect on the things that that experience has taught me the the things that I've learned sort of tend to fall into four different sort of key themes, um, which yeah I, I absolutely apply those four things to um, my corporate career, um, my my basketball as well. Um, but yeah, those those four things, and I'm sort of happy to explore those things. But we've, we've looked at defying the odds, um, also look at um, the messaging around having no regrets. Um, and then there's probably there's probably more to just those two words than than no regrets, um, um, but also too going through something as serious as cancer really does ground you and and sort of make you focus on appreciating life and what happiness looks like as well. Okay, maybe we'll pick up then on we pick up on the no regrets and and, and what that means to you. Yeah, so. Um, I guess for me, as I've gotten older and, you know, I've spent a, a lot of time in the sporting environment and, um, you know, I returned from Europe playing professionally to pursue my corporate career um, about eight and a half years ago. Uh, I've sort of learned that life um, is not quite as simple as applying a label uh, of win or lose. Um, and people that know me well know that it really, really is hard for me to say and accept that it's not possible to win every single time. Um, and I think instead of looking at things as um, winning or losing, if you if you look at what success means, uh, I think it's um, it, it's far deeper than than a, a win or a loss. And and for me, success means that at those points in life when you self reflect and and you know go through that process of self assessment. Uh, I think it's really, really important. And, you know, whether that's looking at yourself in the mirror or um, finding a nice quiet spot at home or, or finding a nice quiet spot um, amongst nature and, and you have those really, really honest conversations with yourself around um, did I really do everything that I said that I would do? Um, is there anything that I would change? Um, and, and for me, because in, in sport, you know, you, you can't go to – major tournament after major tournament and win every single one of them and and losing really does hurt but for me the really important thing is that when I sit down and have that conversation around hey would I would I change anything I want to make sure that's a conversation where the answer is no um, and that I do have no regrets because I think if you apply that sort of approach to all areas of life whether it be sport your career um, relationships um, I think if you will apply that attitude um, you'll find yourself end up in a in a pretty good place. And so that requires a a very sort of high level of of personal honesty to be able to have these conversations, especially from what it sounds like to have that conversation with yourself to sort of hold yourself to account. Yeah, it does, and um, sometimes those internal conversations um, need to be uncomfortable. Um, because sometimes the answer is not always uh, no. There's nothing I'd change if you if you're truly being honest with yourself and it's um, and it's personal growth that you are after. Um, sometimes those conversations are really uncomfortable, but that's how you uncover uh, room for improvement. And and you prefer to have these conversations with yourself, or have you found over time also having coaches or or sort of 
let's say externalizing the conversation you have a you have a preference for that yeah i think um absolutely i do yeah um i I think it's quite dangerous not to get feedback from um you know sort of trusted resources around you but I, i i like to start the process with with myself um and and then sort of gauge based on feedback that i'm getting from those people that are important around me um i guess how how accurate my assessment is of myself um and that's where we sort of go away we we regroup we we replan and um we pursue that plan relentlessly um and and execute which i guess is really really important too when it comes to investing but what i um sort of heard very sort of early on was this idea you know how important your parents were to protecting you from let's say the whole truth when at the right time and 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 giving you the opportunity to have the right mentality to to overcome uh the cancer can you talk a little bit about your relationship with your parents and and how they shaped um the the child and then the adult that you became yeah um and like I said at the start, my my childhood from a, a family household point of view was was perfect. Um, I, I grew up in a, a loving household um, with a with a younger sister. Mum and dad um, sort of taught the value of, of hard work. Um, but to, to give you a bit of an insight into, I guess the um, the traits and personalities that my mum and dad um, fortunately passed on to me. Um, my mum was a nurse. Um, so by nature, very, very caring, um, very nurturing. All she was worried about was people around her being happy and, and healthy. And, um, when she was at her most happiest was when her family was all together. Um, so, um, that, that was mum. Um, dad, uh, dad joined the army when he was 16. Um, and spent just over 20 years in the army. So, so you think about all the traditional sort of traits that um, the armed forces um, teach our soldiers. Um, I look at my dad as being a, a really strong leader, uh, a, a very good communicator, um, very loyal, um, integrity and, and doing the right thing uh, was always really, really important. Um, I, I know, I know he looks at me and thinks that I'm very resilient, um, from what I went through as a kid, but, um, still to this day, I look at him as being the most resilient person that, that I know. And <clears throat> mum and dad were sort of polar opposites, um, in, in many, many ways, but what made them an incredible team was that they really loved the differences in each other, um, and, and really admired those differences. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really fortunate to have picked up um, I, I think the traits that I admire uh, in, in both of them. But if I think back to when I was a kid, you know, I, I remember growing up in Canberra, uh, fortnightly trips to uh, to Batemans Bay to spend the weekend with grandparents. I remember playing um, Aussie Rules footy on the weekend for Chuggeranong Lions Footy Club. So um, really happy childhood. But essentially, mum and dad kept me and my sister grounded with you know lessons of hard work the importance of, um, of a good education, um, to treat others, um, how you want to be treated in return, um, to try and see the good in everyone. Um, but they were also realists too. So they also made sure that we understood that, um, that life won't always be fair either. How how hard was it for you when you, when you lost your mum a few years ago? Yeah. It's, um, mum was, uh, 59 
when we lost her. So it was about um, about seven and a half years ago. And 59, so mum and dad were starting to plan their retirement in a new and, and really exciting phase for them. And mum was diagnosed at the age of 56 with early onset dementia, which um, for, for your listeners that aren't aware, uh, they say is four to five times more aggressive than, um, than standard onset dementia. So it's, it's quite aggressive. So seeing mum over the space of three years deteriorate quite quickly, um, particularly being someone that, you know, that didn't drink, that, that walked every day, that wasn't overweight. Um, she was always conscious of, um, you know, being healthy to, and, and, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't hurt a fly to, to see her sort of deteriorate the way she did over three years, um, to the point where she had to spend the last 12 months of her life in a, in an aged care facility, um, not able to, to speak or, or dress herself or feed herself was, um, was hard. Um, because I guess I've always sort of taught myself or said to myself growing up that, um, everything happens for a reason. Um, that's how I've sort of um, come to peace with having cancer and, and, and the other obstacles that I've, I've had to overcome. So that was, um, that was something that I, I still haven't um, gotten my head around. Um, a, apart from the fact that it's a, a very, very real and, um, and fresh reminder that life is incredibly valuable and um, it can change at the blink of an eye and, um, uh, you know, I, I guess I sort of have never really forgotten about all the kids that I got to meet at the hospital that weren't as lucky as I was. Um, so I sort of, I want to make sure that I don't waste any opportunities myself um, and, and live life to the fullest. I know that's what mum would have wanted me to do and it's what, um, you know, those kids that aren't as fortunate as me would, would give anything um, to have. So you mean you were surrounded by by death, if you like, from a from a young age through, a, I guess, a combination of circumstances. You mentioned the idea of appreciating life, but it it must frustrate you when you look at people who maybe haven't arrived at that conclusion yet and appear probably to be wasting their lives or or not fulfilling their potential. So you maybe just talk a little bit about that as you sort of you know you think about your own struggle and then achievements how do you deal with people who you think are yeah i guess wasting that that opportunity that they've been given yeah it's um it's a it's a tough one and i i do do a little bit of um public speaking which i I really do enjoy um because i've you know i've been unlucky that i've had some some pretty challenging experiences but at the same time really really fortunate for what i've learned from from going through that and um I know sometimes we talk about the, you know, the the story you hear about uh, a man, sort of middle-aged man, might have a heart scare and that's the catalyst for him to go away and, um, you know, change his lifestyle, exercise more, change the way um, he eats, um, be a better partner, be a better father. And it's, it's, it's that real big scare that becomes the catalyst for all those change. And I've, I've always been fascinated by um, why it takes something like that or, or why it takes something like that to someone that you really, really care about to, uh, to spark that change. And 
I, I don't know if it's just the way that us humans are, um, are wired, um, that some of us need a, a wake-up call, but I, um, I absolutely do like um, at every opportunity advocating, um, you know, th- through my own experiences that life is just so precious. And, um, I, you know, I, I think it's important to acknowledge as well that I'm, I'm not an airy-fairy person. I don't think that every single day is going to be um, perfect and, and sunshine and, and, and lollipops. Um, the reality is, is that you know some days are better than others, and um, and some days are just really, really tough. But um, I think it's just really, really important to understand that uh, life is is just so, so precious. Yeah, that's a, a great um, a great message. Um, you talked also one of your like four principles or whatever being around around happiness um mm. what is happiness yeah it's uh it's a um it's a really important question that i struggled with for for most of my teens uh and i'm i'm not talking about um you know opening the door in the morning and it's a, it's a beautiful day outside and i feel happy it's um it's that real inner deep level of feeling content um is what i I really struggled with and it was um, mainly due to the fact that I was an amputee and up until the age of about 17, I used to wear a um, basically a, a cover over my leg so that at quick glance or from a, a, you know, a, a long distance, you couldn't actually tell that I had one leg. And I remember I was 17 sitting on the couch um, before school one morning eating my cereal and I sort of caught myself looking down at my leg and I sort of had one of those um, aha moments where I was looking at the cover and I realized that I'd been wearing the cover this whole time um, because if I could control it, I didn't want people to see that I had one leg. Um, I I don't think I was ashamed of it, but um, I certainly wasn't happy with who I was um, or, or comfortable with it. And... I went to the kitchen and grabbed a pair of scissors and I cut the cover off, exposing, you know, the metal, carbon fibre, and I went to school wearing a pair of shorts and T-shirt. And I remember walking in and I, I could see people, you know, not, not rudely, but I could see people sort of um, observing what I'd, what I'd done. And it was the most liberating feeling um, I've ever had uh, to date. And very, very shortly after that, my dad asked me, he said, Tristan, if someone came to the door and said, we can go back in time to when you were nine years old and change everything, what would you say? And I said, no, straight away. And some people find that really, really hard to believe that I would, I would not change any of this. Um, and it, it, I sort of thought more about how quickly I answered that and, and why I said no. And for me, it was important to realize that this was before um, my wheelchair basketball career sort of took off. So it was before I'd played for Australia. It was before I'd gone and been able to live in Europe for seven years, before any of that. And I realized that suddenly I knew the value of how I had changed as a person from going through cancer um, you know, going through cancer as a nine-year-old and a twelve-year-old makes you grow up really, really quickly, and it you know taught me those lessons around defying the odds and appreciating life and you know having no regrets. So, 
I looked at myself as a 17-year-old amputee and I knew I'd changed as a result of the experience, but I was really, really happy with the person that I'd become and I thought um, I've learned some really, really valuable things that I think will come in pretty handy um, throughout life. So that's the, um, I guess, the explanation that I, I gave to my dad. Um, and I, I hope that when my dad asked that question, he, a large part of him knew that I was going to say no. That's a, that's a nice story. Um, what are you doing now with that sort of, you know, you've, you've had your, your professional career, you're now working in financial services. How are you, um, well, I guess, how did you arrive there? What, what, why financial services? Yeah. Um, I've always had a, a really close fascination with money. I'm talking from a, a five or six year old. I remember getting, you know, the $2 pocket money each week and putting it in the, in the little piggy back. And I'd, I'd sort of count that each week and sort of write it down in a little notebook. And, um, that largely due to, you know, mum and dad teaching me about the value of money. And that obviously evolved as I got older. Um, but financial advice in particular, I, um, I had a teammate that I met through wheelchair basketball who, um, through acquiring his disability, um, received an insurance, um, payment. Uh, he was only 14 years at the, at the time. So his dad became trustee, uh, of that money. And, and thank God his dad bought, um, him a family home, um, for him to move into when he was old enough. However, what was, um, you know, it, it just a, a really terrible outcome is that when he turned 21 and got access to the money, he was a couple of years older than I was, by the way. Um, he basically blew the whole lot, um, to the point where now um, he's working a full-time job and um, without going into the specifics, it was a, an amount of money large enough to set him up um, and his family up for life. And um, that sort of sparked my curiosity even more around, hey, can I sort of take some of the things that I already know about money and how to grow it and how to protect it um, and, um, and sort of have a, a bit of a wider impact. So... Coincidentally, I went to uh, University of Wollongong, started back in, in 2002 doing a Bachelor of Commerce, and that was the very, very first year in Australia that financial planning was offered as a, as a major. Um, so uh, I think, yeah, it was one of those things that was meant to be. And um, um, however, finishing uni, that was when the opportunity presented itself to go and play basketball professionally. Um, I, I was working in a, in a support role, um, for AMZ at the time and I remember receiving a, an email from a, an Italian wheelchair basketball club to, to go overseas and play and um, my first reaction was you know no I've got the job that I want and I'm going to pursue this career and I, I told one of my colleagues at work you know that I'd received this offer to go and play wheelchair basketball in Italy for 10 months um, and he said oh when, when are you leaving and I said oh I'm, I'm not going to go and he um, basically said that I was crazy and really urged me to reconsider. So um, I went overseas for one year with the intent of coming back to that role, but ended up spending seven years. So um, I've only just returned to Australia um, nine years ago to pursue um, my professional career, which has been in advice for a, a large amount of that time. But over the past two years, I've moved into a, um, a people leader role. And it's the, the the financial well-being that that's the the core of what you're doing. So it sort of ties back to, I guess, talking about your own 
life journeys more than more than money. Would that be fair? Yeah, exactly right. And you know, most people have seen the challenges that the financial um, planning industry has been through over the past sort of two, three years in particular. We've seen um, the big four banks sort of succumb to to those pressures, um, and for a moment there, it felt like there was just this mass exodus of. Uh, licensees and advisors from the industry. So it was um, really, really pleasing um, sort of, you know, 18 months ago uh, to see AIA sort of put their hand up and say, hey, no, advice is really, really important and um, it's really, really important that Australians can access it um, affordably. So I find myself again um, in a in a situation that I, I you know, really couldn't have wished for um, working for AIA Financial Wellbeing, who understand that wellbeing um, is more than just financial wellbeing, um, and it's really, really important to look at you know your overall health and wellbeing, which we advocate um, you know to our own staff, to our customers, and the communities in which we live in. So, um, and, and again, I think. You would be, um, I think, a, a bit of a fool as a new licensee to go out and try and replicate what licensees have done in the past because um, we, we've clearly seen that it doesn't work. So we're absolutely all about um, trying to deliver advice in a different way that will be sustainable. Um, and we feel that coupling financial well-being with overall well-being is just such a, a powerful um, thing for a customer gone almost full circle from being impacted at a young age and now to making an Im- an impact for others so it's kind of like the whole thing is sort of very um like a cycle of life if you like and 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 now as you sort of look forward what what is it sort of excites you the most about the future yeah what excites me the most i i guess it's um you know finally i can sort of take the accumulated experiences that I've had from um, from you know bone cancer as a nine-year-old to the things that I've achieved in the sporting world um, to understanding the the power of advice uh, in this new business being AIA Financial Wellbeing, where we we couple financial advice with what overall well-being looks like, and um, you know you can have the most um, bulletproof financial plan in the world, but if we're not promoting and advocating um, a healthy way of living, um, that financial plan might all be for nothing. Um, so um, it's I'm just incredibly grateful and, and, and thankful that I'm able to apply all the skills that I've accumulated from different experiences um, to have a having an impact on Australians and um, importantly, the, the people that I lead because um, both financial well-being and, and living long, healthy lives are two things that I'm deeply passionate about. So you said earlier that your dad asked you when you were 18 if you could change anything. Now you're approaching 40. Is there anything you would change today? There probably isn't, Douglas, which um, I know I'm sort of incredibly fortunate to be able to reflect on my life um, this far and, and be able to say that. Um, and I, I think it's... I'm, I'm able to do that because no one will go through their lives without challenges. Um, but I think the thing that I was forced to learn from a very, very early age was that no matter how dark or, or dire a situation is, 
you need to be able to, I guess, have the composure to sort of take a step back and take a deep breath and try and understand what the opportunity is here. Um, where's the opportunity in this really, really dark place um, for something really bright to happen? Um, and I, I think you can probably apply that sort of learning to investing as well that um, sometimes things don't go to plan, um, but sometimes we just need to uh, take a moment, stand back, take a breath, sort of reassess things and, and then relaunch. I think that's a, look, a fantastic place to end. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And um, unfortunately, I think I'm the middle-aged man you were describing um, in the middle, but I think um, the world has been fortunate in a way that you've been able to share um, the the experiences you've had, but but just to sort of inspire so many people and and have that positive that positive energy and 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 honesty, I think is um, yeah incredible attribute. So look, Tristan, thank you so much for joining us. Um, really appreciate it. No, thank you, Douglas. Been a been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Investing for Life podcast. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. For show notes from today's conversation, head to platinum.com.au.